And I actually learned how to do that from a guy who learned how to do it from an American Indian. Uh, but the same guy then went off and made a longbow. So, and I, you know, actually quite a few of them. Uh, and made some also out of Osage uh, orange, but then also used a yew and some other, you know, the more traditional woods to, to compare them. And, and they're not dissimilar. They actually work very well for bows as well. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This episode of the Lumen Innovation Podcast is brought to you in part by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. 20 different flavors of pecans to choose from. Whether you want in-shell, cracked, chocolate, or candied pecans, the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company has you covered. Don't forget about their pecan pies and fudge as well. If you live anywhere in Central Texas, stop by their shop at 2626 Highway 71 West in Cedar Creek. If you live anywhere else, keep in mind that they mail pecans all over the country. Give them a call at 1-800-518-3870 or go to birdall.com. That's B-E-R-D-O-L-L.com. All of the pecan products are grown, prepared, and cooked right there in Cedar Creek by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. Welcome to the Loom Innovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox, and for today's show, we're going to be taking a trip back in time. Well, sort of. We'll be taking a trip back to the current Middle Ages. All of our guests today are members of the Society for Creative Anachronism, otherwise known as SCA. Not sure what that is? Well, I wasn't either until just a few days ago. Let's explore it all together and find out. Our first guest is Brandon Butler. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thanks for having me, Jim. Our next guest is John Steelquist. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. And finally, we have Connie Joe Steelquist. Welcome to the show, Connie Joe. Hi. Cool. One of you guys, a softball here, big picture. What is the Society for Creative Anachronism? Well, the SCA is a, an international not for profit organization based on recreating the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. We do that uh, through various forms of research, through combat. Uh, through making clothing, making armor, uh, and it's learning by doing. Very good. Any uh, Anything else to add on that, John, no, or that Connie Joe? That's a good one. Another kind of softball, but maybe not, is why is this important? Why is this a good thing to have in our culture today? We look back and look how da Vinci did things, and we wonder why. How did he do it? Just like the pyramids, how are those things done? Um, glass beads, pottery, and by actually researching and recreating what they did, we, we find out how smart they really were. <laughs> really, that's kind of how it is. Okay, very good. It kind of brings history forward to the present a little bit. What are the time periods that you guys are most interested in for, for this? Um, 600 to 1600. Okay, so about 1,000 years, yes. but it's far enough back to where it's, it's kind of not familiar to us. Correct. Okay, very cool. Uh, mo most of us, I think most people know what the word anachronism is, but perhaps there's some listeners out there that don't. John, can you handle that? What sure, is that's uh, something out of place in time. Uh, so we use it in particular, not only are the things that we do anachronistic to the modern era, but uh, we have the creative anachronism. And so we study history 
but we don't limit ourselves to any one particular battle, one particular thing. So at some of our events, you'll see a 16th century Elizabethan right next to a Viking, and they'll be talking about how to start a fire, right? So it, it's, and, and they're done different ways. So we, we kind of mix our different historical uh, studies kind of together as well. In the introduction, I used the term current Middle Ages. Who wants to tackle what you guys mean by that term, current Middle Ages? I guess I can. Uh, we use current Middle Ages to describe we are trying to recreate the Middle Ages, but we are putting, not necessarily putting aside some of the modern conveniences, like flush toilets or eyeglasses. It's a good uh, thing. Uh, not having certain negative aspects of the Middle Ages, like the plague or <laughs> religious persecution. Uh, we try to be uh, inclusive and welcoming in our current Middle Ages much more so than is commonly thought of in the actual Middle Ages. Uh, who can talk about a little bit of, not the history of the stuff you guys are building, but the history of the organization and where did it start, when did it start, those kind of things. So the SCA started as a medieval-themed party in Berkeley in 1966. So uh, uh, it really was a group of people who wanted to get away from the modern world. It was sort of a, a hippie movement to start. Uh, it really was a let's ditch the modern era and go back to how it should have been. Uh, and we've since grown into something much more than just a, a party. How long have you guys been involved, each of you? Go around the table. I've been playing since um, 1995. Uh, okay, so <laughs> you're, you're going that. on 20 plus years then. Uh -huh. Okay, very Brandon, what about you? I started in 2001. 2001, okay. And... Uh, I've been doing this for 36 years. My goodness, okay. So I'm the newcomer. You're the newcomer at 17 <laughs> years. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. So way back in uh, season one of the Loom Innovation podcast, episode 13, we did a show on cosplay. But you guys are, you kind of cringe if people call you cosplayers. You're way more than cosplay, right? Uh, talk I, about that a little bit. I think we're, so for the SCA, so there's cosplay. I think there's the SCA, and then there are reenactors. We're not quite cosplay because we actually camp and do these things. We cook, we eat, we do everything up to two weeks at a time. But yet we're not quite hardcore reenactors that you know everything has to be sewn by hand and you can't wear your glasses or you can't peek at your cell phone. So we're kind of in the middle. I think that's pretty fair. When I think of cosplay, I think of you're doing the costume for the sake of uh, that character or for the sake of creating the outfit itself and our organization is just a little bit more than creating the outfit alone and I apologize if I'm offending cosplayers I'm not that familiar <laughs> with the community uh, but we're the the costumes are just one part of what we do for some people that is everything they do but for most of our people it's just one aspect cool and we're going to touch on some of those here before we uh, wrap up uh, that's so you're, you're not only wearing the costumes but you're making them you're teaching people how to how to do those so yeah we'll touch on that uh, a little bit later that's, that's definitely a good thing to remember before we move on to another subject do you have any guess of how many people are doing this worldwide how big is your group the last time I had a quote known number, it was about thirty thousand members worldwide. But that was a so it's, while it's, ago. It's bigger than that. I think uh, the, the the numbers are in the the fifty thousand, and and that's uh, members. Uh, we have 
there's there's actually no requirement for paid membership. So if you just want to come and do this, you can just show up and, and do this. You, you have to uh, pay a fee at the gate to, to so we can pay for the sites that we use. Uh, but other than that, um, you don't have to be a member of the organization. And depending on the location, it's estimated that anywhere from you know, four to ten times the number of people actually participate than our members. So Got it. So whatever the number is that's recorded is surely an underestimate by yeah, a large factor. By a significant Yeah, amount. okay, yeah. That, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about the organizational structure of the SC8. Uh, who can cover that of kind of the hierarchy, I guess you could call it the government of this organization? Can, is this kind of a top-level uh, description of, of that? So there's, there's kind of two different aspects. Uh, it is a 501c3 uh, educational organization, uh, but that, uh, and we do go out into the communities and, and, and teach. We will go to schools and do demos and things like that. Uh, however, uh, and there's a corporate structure, so we actually are incorporated in California, uh, but we also have a separate medieval government uh, that runs the 19 kingdoms. 20. 20 kingdoms? <laughs> One just got added, not to <laughs> It's in Canada. The, yeah. Uh, so the, the, the 20 kingdoms, and they, so they each have a king and queen, and then they have their own officer corps as well who you know, support them both at the kingdom level, which typically is, is state-wide. Uh, so you're currently in the kingdom of Onstura, which is Texas and Oklahoma. Except um, for El Paso. El Paso belongs to the Outlands. It's the Citadel. <laughs> Okay, and is that part of the New Mexico area? Yeah, it is. Yes. Okay, so where the time zone splits. Okay, so so each of the areas you're calling kingdoms uh, are are Texas 20. is a big state, but it's maybe a state or two or three or four mm -hmm. states, but kind of a region of areas, and that has its own kingdom and its own name and its own kind of structure under it. But then there's an overarching structure that's kind of tying all the kingdoms together. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the that's the corporate office. Okay. Um, but they really try to, other than just sort of put some bylaws in place for us to uh, get along and live by, um, they kind of stay out of the way, or they try to. So, uh, tell me about uh, a term I saw on the web website, Seneschal. What is Seneschal? So, as the current Seneschal of our local group, okay, uh, I, I can tackle that. Uh, the Seneschal is essentially kind of the local branch president. Okay. Uh, we're the ones with the authority to sign contracts, like for our uh, event sites, for the meetings where we have uh, things like our populist business meetings or fighter practices. Uh, the Seneschal is the one with the authority to sign that, and they also help make sure that everyone's following the rules of the society as well as the rules of... Uh, and, and the laws of the current world if we're ever on a site. So I get to be the bad guy to enforce the, no, we can't drink on this site, uh, or we have to get off site by X time, or we're going to be charged another X number of dollars. Okay, so you're kind of the leader of the local group. Is there also a Seneschal-type Seneschal -type title for the big uh, corporate uh, for structure? The for the kingdom, yes, and for the society, yes. Mm -hmm. And the okay. funny thing is all three of us have been a seneschal at the local level, which is the Borneo level. Okay. And then these two, I've been acting kingdom seneschal for two weeks, and these two have both been the kingdom seneschal all of, for the state, for Anstiora. Okay. So. Uh, go, go down a little bit, dig a little bit lower in the management structure, and maybe not even management, but some of the lower level titles and roles in the organization. So we actually separate uh, the organization um, kind of by categories of things they're responsible for. So okay. we have the president, but we all, and we have a treasurer, right, which is the Reeve, 
right? So we use medieval terms for the, the various offices. But we have also have a Minister of Arts and Sciences because that's something that we're very interested in is studying the arts and the sciences. But we'll also have uh, uh, an Earl Marshal who's responsible for uh, chivalric combat, a rapier marshal responsible for rapier combat. Uh, we have a Master of the Horse who does the equestrian things and the jousting. Okay, so, so you're, you're including virtually every part of day-to-day -day life from back then. Virtually every yep. part of day-to-day -day life. Yeah. If they did okay. it, we try to do it We too. also have a Kingdom Chronicler that does the newsletter. Okay. And because, well, you know, we're the century that we are, we have a Kingdom Web Minister. So we have a Web Minister also locally. That Can you tell us how web pages were in 1650? <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a Hospitler. That means they welcome newcomers and set up our demos. Okay. And the other two offices that we have not discussed that are at kingdom levels are um, their majesties, the king and queen, and then if we have a highness, a prince and princess. Very cool. Can you also talk about the order of chivalry, order, order of laurel, and also the order of pelican? pelican. What do pelican. each of those roles mean? So do you want to take chivalry? Sure, as I'll take chivalry. Order? So there's uh, the order of chivalry, which is uh, based on what we call chivalric combat. Uh, which is recreating combat uh, basically in heavier armor, so male armor. Um, uh, we don't use steel swords. We use rattan for safety because we're actually going full force, full speed, uh, and our armor is real. So we're we, we using real armor and then uh, essentially a rattan sword, and rattan specifically because it doesn't uh, splinter and, and but it's also sharp. sort of soft and flexible it, and a it little doesn't, bit, yeah. doesn't kill anyone. Still it, it mostly hurts. hitting our friends with baseball bats. <laughs> Got it, okay. They probably are not friends afterwards. But right. uh, <laughs> and, and so there's, there's uh, a, what's called a peerage, right, which is the highest level of achievement okay. in, in uh, several different areas at the society level. Uh, and then the king and queen grant these in the kingdom. So the order of chivalry is basically those that are skilled and talented in, in the realm of combat. In combat, yeah. Cool. Who can talk about the order of the laurel? I'll take the laurel. Uh, it is the same level as the order of the chivalry, uh, but it's for arts and sciences. And it covers anything and everything, cooking, okay. costuming, uh, even studies of period combat. So you could presumably join the Order of Chivalry for your skill in fighting and also join the Order of the Laurel for studying and researching period combat. Okay, and Brandon, you're, you're part of the Order of the Laurel as, as well as Connie Joe, right? Yes. Both, both of you two are. Okay, cool. Connie Joe, can you handle the last one, Order of the Pelican? The Order of the Pelican is the same as the other two laurels, I mean, the, sorry, the other two um, orders, peerages, orders, yeah. peerages, but it has to do with service, and service at a local level, at a regional level, at a kingdom level, at a society level, and it's how much service you have given to the organization. Okay, and each of you three have, have got that uh, yes. as well, right? Yes. Okay, very cool. So that's definitely good. So the, the primary thing when I met you guys uh, a couple weeks ago, the primary thing that intrigued me and, and what I thought would be a really good fit for the Lumen Innovation podcast here is what I have now learned is the order of the laurel of the actual, the science, the math, the, the, the nerdy stuff, the, the making, the doing, the teaching. So I'm hoping we can spend uh, much of the remaining time just kind of digging into the, the details of that. Uh, you guys have got a room full of things here. We're actually, let's set the scene here for the listeners. We're actually in in a meeting room inside of one of the parks here in Webster, Texas, or actually this might actually be Pasadena, all the city. No, it's, is this it's Clear Lake. It's, it's Clear, Clear Lake. Lake. Okay, so all the city limits kind of smashed together here. But we're in one of the meeting rooms in one of the parks here in the area. 
And you guys in the other end of this building have a regular monthly meeting going on, but we're kind of tucked away in a back room here, and, and you guys have brought in a bunch of cool things that you've made. Let's just pick one. I don't know, Brandon, turn around and pick a cool thing, and let's just dig into it. Let's, let's pick some details. Well, I'll pick the, uh, the coronet. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Connie's coronet. It was actually made by a couple of different artisans in our society. And if you're wondering why Brian knows so much about my coronet, it's actually um, really special. And so, but you get to talk about it. So, since you know so much about it. Okay, so just for the listeners, you, get, you can go ahead and describe it. But I'm, I've picked it up here. It is what you might expect of, of kind of a crown, a king, king's crown kind of a thing. It's got a, a foam padding on the inside to help guard your head from the metal, surrounded by a handful of gemstones and some gold decor around it. So, go ahead and talk, tell the story of this thing. So, this is. A symbol of office for people who have served as king or queen. Uh, you can see the tall, the large projections. They're called embattlements. They kind of look like the castle tops. Uh, that is for when you serve as king or queen one time, you get what's called a county, uh, and the symbol is a coronet uh, of these embattlements. And if you serve a second time, you get strawberry leaves, which are actual leaves that are based off of strawberry leaves. Uh, so th that is for the rank of Duke or Duchess. So this is Connie's joint county duchy coronet. Uh, and it's, it's, it is very special because the uh, brasswork, the wolves inside the embattlement was actually made by a dear friend of ours who unfortunately passed away uh, almost 10 years ago now. And it kind of stayed in that state of the county uh, coronet, even though Connie became a duchess, uh, because this dear friend of ours was was so close to us, we weren't sure, she wasn't sure really, if she wanted anybody to touch it or do anything with it. So the, uh, the gemstones are, are red, you mentioned those are, yes. are symbolic of strawberries. What is the actual gem there? What What is the, the material? It may be just red glass, Are or maybe actual gem. Are they citrine? Sure. I think they're red citrine. Okay. Um, my friend Gladwin actually sent them up to the the lady who made her. Her name is Cat, and she lives in Oklahoma. And Cat and I came to an agreement on how she could take the the coronet. I couldn't actually wear it; wasn't functional to wear. I mean, it was pretty, and just, I, I just was the brass I was made. It was yeah. just the brass piece. Okay. And I. When I was made a countess, I was made in it, but it really wasn't functional. It pulled my hair and everything, and um, Christopher was going to finish it, but didn't get the chance. Okay. So years later, I've literally had it six months, um, but I found someone last year, Kat, who I've been friends with a long time, and she's the one who um, finished it out so it could be wearable. It's, it's heavier than it looks. At first glance, I thought it was really thin At, metal, but is it silver? Is it tin? What is the main metal here? Uh, it's silver and it's brass. Silver. Okay. And actually, that is really lightweight. Yeah, but, it, but it's, it, in the grand yeah. scheme of things, it's not that heavier, yeah, no, but it's, it's heavier than it looked when I first yeah. saw it. Uh, but handmade, and this is just yes. a, a symbolic of the, the kind of stuff you guys do. You actually make realistic-looking things from hand, and that's that's a pretty cool first example. Who wants to pick another item off the, the shelf there, and let's just kind of dig into that. We call them treasure necklaces. They are what uh, Norse wore, and a lot of times people call them Vikings, but Viking is a verb. You go Viking, 
or you do Viking, you not you you are not a Viking. That explains the ing ending. Yes. Ah, very cool. See? I never noticed. So that. when people say, "Oh, are you Viking?" you say, "No, I'm going Viking, but I am Norse." So what so. does the actual verb Viking mean? Uh, pillage, plunder, party. You know, okay. all those fun things. All right, the story now we know. Life. All right, so what what have you got there? Well, these, these so are. So this is um, a treasure necklace. They're the brooches that attach to the apron and. We pretty much believe that it was to show your wealth. The more beads you had, the more amber. Um, it showed that you were a wife of a chieftain, but it, it went with your wealth. You could also take things off it and pay people for it. So barter for coins, amber, beads. So I'm, I'm struggling to, to describe this to the listeners, but it is a kind of a glorified necklace, but not really a necklace meant to go around your neck, but rather to snap to the front of a, a garment of some sort. And it's kind of got three loops down, I guess, where you would describe as a regular necklace loop. But there's three of them here. Each of them are adorned with all kinds of different gemstones and artifacts and metal pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, you made this, though, right? Yes. So I strung that together. But I also, and the amber, well, I did not make that. You know, nature did. <sighs> yes. Mother Nature. Thank you very much. It's beautiful. But a lot of the things we carve and we um, engrave in. There's but, plenty of glass beads in there, and you've got a few yeah. loose beads. Go ahead and talk about the process um, of making beads. I do lamp work. So okay. I started this um, in the SCA because <laughs> every girl wants more bling, and it gets to be expensive, so you got to go make it yourself. Yeah. So I actually went and um, took some classes in the SCA, and the next thing I know, I was at a bead show, and this this woman said, hey, I need some help. Can you come and um, help me at my bead shop? If you work a couple hours a week, I'll give you more classes. The next thing I know, I'm, you know, volunteering at a bead shop, spending more than I'm uh, making. Uh, yep, I understand <laughs> and, uh, how that goes. So yeah. now I do lamp work. So what, what and she I make is, my beads. What she's describing here is we've got four loose beads that are outside of the necklace, not attached to the necklace. Uh, two of them are kind of yellow and black, and the other one is multicolored, kind of a... What happens when a rainbow explodes, I guess. And, uh, but they're, they're hand-turned glass beads. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of these are also on the, the necklace type thing I described. What's the name for the necklace thing again? Uh, a treasure necklace. Tre treasure necklace. Okay. But I've actually gone from using a, a hothead torch, what we, do mundane, what we do modernly, to I've actually worked in a, um, a recreated bead kiln that they used in the Middle Ages. So I've actually, we've put that together out of mud and clay and fired it and then made beads like they did. And Okay, talk a little bit about not only the process of making the thing, but the process of knowing that you're making it correctly. How, how about the research of knowing that what you've made here represents something in the real world a few hundred years back? Talk, talk about that process of research. Um, so there's a, there's, first off, I'm going to tell everyone that I love Pinterest. Oh, gosh, I love Pinterest. You can find everything on Pinterest. And most people that go to museums post their pictures of the museums on Pinterest. Um, Every time we do go visit somewhere, like we just came back from Iceland, we go to the museums, and the museums have lots of finds, lots of archaeology, uh, archaeological finds, and we take pictures there. And sometimes, if we ride ahead, they'll actually let us go into their stacks and touch their items. It's amazing what you can do at, at museums. Yeah, especially so, if you tell them that you're legitimately interested and not just another yes. customer. So, yeah, yeah. In, in part, we've developed friendships with a number of people all around the world. Uh, and so 
it's not unusual for us or other people in the SCA that we know who have also, you know, either are the various archaeologists or museum curators themselves, um, but we'll actually get uh, a picture of an email of something that one of our friends just dug up. Mm -hmm. So okay. no one has seen this. He just took the picture and he sends it off to us. That's, that's pretty so. good. I have a friend in Oklahoma, Beatrice, who has a student relationship. She's a Laurel and has a student that's, and um, her student lives in Sweden and she actually is an archaeology an archaeology school and she, um, her specialty is beads and so she's finding beads and she just wrote a dissertation, I believe, on beads. So I've actually got to peek at that and that was amazing. So I know that by their research and my research, so I'm doing pretty historical, accurate so, beads. So this treasure necklace we described, uh, was it modeled after any particular one in history, or is it just kind of a hodgepodge of various other things you've kind of pieced together? This one is a hodgepodge. I have one at home that is off. I got, um, when I went to the Corning Museum, I tried to replicate beads from there. I okay. was inspired by those beads. Very cool. So on this, this piece, there's... Uh, Tons of beadwork. There's metalwork. Uh, there's uh, lots of craftsmanship here. This is the kind of thing you might see at an art show or in, a, in an art booth that you could that you could go buy. Uh, it's a well-made piece of jewelry. It's kind of kind of uh, maybe unusual for our era. If someone wore this walking down the street, they would kind of look a little unusual. But it is a well-made piece of art. It's 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 kind of really neat. Uh, let's see. We've got a table full of other goodies here. Let's pick one of those and uh, and see what we can learn about it. Uh, so I'll talk. I'll I'll talk about my my uh, forte, which uh, is armor making. Um, so since uh, since I enjoy combat, really the only way I can fight in real armor is to have real armor, uh, and so um, that that's my primary artistry. Uh, and so I I also do other metal works as well. Um, and this one is kind of a creative uh, version of a gauntlet. There are are no uh, steel gauntlets exactly like this. So, so at first glance, I, I've, I've got this thing on my left hand, and it is, no doubt, it is metal. It's steel. It fits me kind of like a boxing glove, uh, but only that my palm is wide open, but the outside of my hand is well guarded. I mean, I could, I, I feel like Superman. I could punch anything with this, and it wouldn't hurt. It's, it's solid plates of steel. Uh, well done. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the surprising thing that most people think is they believe that armor's really heavy. Uh, and as you got later in period, as metal uh, tech, uh, creation techniques were refined, uh, this is an appropriate weight for a gauntlet. And it's, it's really not more than a heavy ski glove, right? Okay. Is, is, you know, it, it only weighs a pound, pound and a half or so. As, I've, um, as I put it on my hand and I kind of curl my hand maybe to make a fist, yeah. This thing takes the shape of somewhat like a pill bug. It, it r rolls and, and folds <laughs> with you. Uh, it's it's really cool. How long did it take to actually make this thing? Uh, a day. It, it took me about a day. Uh, however, it probably took us six months of fighting and adjusting and throwing pieces out to get. I mean, you can see there there are uh, knuckle forms exactly where my where my knuckles are. So this is a custom fit exactly to me. Uh, and, and it curves where my hand curves. And so every one of these pieces and plates and where the articulations meet was, was arranged for me. And so there's probably five more gauntlets worth of plates that we started with, didn't get, threw away. So, you know, so. I, I've, I'm maybe missing one, but I think I see seven sheets of steel here that are all bent and riveted together. Um, each one of them is bent in a way that looks 
I mean, it's kind of old and rusty, but it looks very well professional. It looks very professional made. The, the, the bins are not what you'd get if you just kind of smashed metal with a hammer. It's, it's very specific bent. Uh, really kind of a cool thing. Talk about the process of actually assembling it and making rivets and all that that, that's, that stay together. So, so rivets, uh, fortunately, you can buy. However, making a rivet uh, is a really fairly simple thing, is you draw out a piece of metal into a wire, then you just kind of smash an end. Now you've got a flat, you push it through, you cut it off, uh, you back the other part, and you, you knock it down. So basically you've got two mushroom ends on a piece of wire. Okay. So that's, that's a basic rivet. And Most rivets in today's metal working are tight, uh, but those are very specifically kind of loose so that the joints can move. Correct. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's kind of that's neat that it, it looks old, it looks antique, but there's no question that took a lot of time to get right. And, you know, like I say, the, the, the bends are not just what you'd get if you just kind of randomly smashed with a hammer. It's, it's very specifically bent. Very cool. That's a neat thing. Uh, do, you, do you make one for both hands, or is it you, you have that in one hand and maybe a shield or a sword or something in the other so hand? So it depends on what it is I'm fighting with. Uh, so we fight with virtually all of the weapons of war. So I have a sword and a shield. I have a, a glaive. I have spears. We have bows and arrows. I have crossbows. Again, we use lances from horseback. So... Uh, and all of the various metal pieces and things that kept them alive then, uh, we also recreate. So, so how do you know that that is historically accurate? So what, what steps did you take to make sure that is, that is accurate? Uh, so, so we actually went to uh, a number of different museums and actually pulled from their stacks and looked. And this one is actually not historically accurate in a couple of parts. The thumb, we found no... Uh, so, so this one, we actually took what they made and modified it just a little bit more because rather than it protecting my hand from one or two terrific blows while I'm fighting and saving my life, uh, I'm hitting my friends two or three times a week with a baseball bat. And so this one needs to protect even more so than they did in the Middle Ages. I see, so, okay. Uh, we, we, we actually took what they did and then tried to advance the, the technology just a little bit, although uh, some of theirs absolutely are perfectly protective as well. So, so you, you're part of your background in this organization is combat, so you've talked a bit about that because that's what you know. But the organization also covers archery, equestrian, costuming, cooking, metalwork, woodworking, music, dance, calligraphy, cooking, fiber arts, brewing beer. Uh, what did I miss? Rapier. Rapier. So Talk about that. Talk about rapier. Brian. So, uh, in line with the chivalry, the laurel, and the pelican, those peerages, uh, a couple of years ago we actually created a new peerage called the Order of Defense for those people who are skilled in what we'll sometimes call unarmored combat. Uh, and we wear protective equipment like they do with the chivalric combat, but it's significantly lower grade. It's multiple layers of clothing that encase a tip comes off of a sword. So let's back up a little. You've, you've mentioned rapier, but that's maybe not a term that's familiar with everyone. Talk about that. And Talk about what the actual definition of the term. What, what is that? So a rapier is an advancement in kind of sword technology. It is a very long, thin, and tapering sword seen in the late 1500s. Similar to fencing? 1600s. Yes. It okay. is actually the great-grandfather of the modern fencing sword. Okay. Okay. So now go ahead now that we've kind of defined the term. Go ahead and keep... So so we fight with the rapier. Uh, we It's real steel, unlike the chivalric combat. We fight with actual steel weapons, but they are uh, not sharp-edged or uh, tipped. 
Uh, it's a flat tip, and we put a rubber stop on the end of those, so we protect uh, ourselves and each other. But you guys are going at this pretty hard, though, right? You're, you're, you're obviously not trying to hurt each other, but you're going at it with enough force where it potentially could, or, or no? Uh, hopefully not. We, okay. we train very hard and calibrate so that we are not hitting people particularly hard. We're looking at trying to prove that we are the better fighter without necessarily force, but focusing more on timing and placement. And it's a bit of an honor system of, yeah, that guy hit me enough where I should be kind of dead and out and I'll, and I'll, it, and I'll kind of resign. Is that how that works? It absolutely is. Okay. Uh, and we've seen recently a lot of people pushing for Western martial arts or HEMA, historical uh, European martial arts. And you see these competitions where they actually armor up to go full speed, major force, Compared to them, we armor down and tone down our force, but not necessarily our speed. I see. Okay, but do you still have injuries? How how does how do you how does that work? Talk a bit about don't get, don't have Broken to be arms. too gruesome, but uh. so so uh, of course uh, it is a martial art, and so we absolutely have injuries um, on the chivalric field. Uh, you're only required to armor those parts that could be seriously injured by someone hitting you with a baseball bat. So my, my elbows and <laughs> knees, my head, uh, my kidneys are, are all covered, but I don't have to have any armor on my upper thigh. So you hit okay. my thigh with a baseball bat, it's going to just leave a huge bruise. Okay. Um, and you'll get a huge bruise. I choose not to have huge bruises, so I have armor on, you know, over most of my body. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting is the majority of our injuries are as much uh, because we fall down and we're weighing, we're wearing 30 to 50 pounds of armor. I that, see. That, you know, or, or the 300 pound man wearing 50 pounds of armor falls on top of you. So we, we end up with kind of odd injuries of, you know, the, the, the ones that, you know, we just like any other sports inju injuries. break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Luminovation podcast where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Luminovation podcast on our webpage, luminovation.com. That's L-U-M-innovation.com, luminovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. Talk a bit about um, uh, music. So actually, this is going to be, I think, the second show I'm going to put out that will have our new theme music. Thank you, Hogue from Austin. Um, but talk about a bit, a bit about music uh, as it relates to your group. How do you recreate music from 500 years ago? Well, fortunately, uh, as Connie mentioned with uh, various museums, uh, being able to visit them and talk to curators, 
we get sent a lot of information, and there have been huge advances in the past five or so years with digitizing, digi digitizing museum collections. And so we're actually able to see manuscripts where they wrote music. Oh, okay. And the notation cool. is vastly different than what you see today. I would guess so, yeah. Uh, so, But we have had, fortunately, so many scholars uh, over the years be able to get at least an approximation of what that would be and even translate it into modern music. So if someone were to play, I don't know, music from Ireland in 1620, what would that sound like? What, would we recognize it in Actually anything? Actually the same as it does today, kind of. You would, you, it wouldn't, I mean, if someone put that on NPR, you wouldn't kind of, it wouldn't stick out. And probably because we listen to it all the time also. Okay, yes, all right. So they, fortunately, the Irish music actually maintained quite a bit of its tradition, right? It, is they came from a pass it down person to person, you know, not only uh, the stories, but also the music, and yeah. it stayed alive. Okay. And so a, you know, a number of what you consider traditional Irish music uh, is really very similar to what was done hundreds of years ago. Is there any, well. any uh, I was going to say genre of music, any countries original music that just sounds completely weird now that you hear this and you think, man, what, what's up with those guys? <laughs> Is there anything that really sticks out as unusual? I wouldn't necessarily say so much country specifically, but time period. Uh, just with the differences in instruments, uh, when you go back earlier and earlier, it just sounds so far removed from what we think of today. When you get into the kind of the 16th century, you start seeing kind of the father of the modern guitar. So a lot of the music sounds very similar okay. uh, to what we have today. Is, but is the sitar back, is, is that one of those original, the sitar, not the guitar, but the sitar, is that one from way back in the day? Uh, yes, and it's also from uh, more of the Eastern influence. I see, okay, okay. Very cool. So let's see, what else could we dig into? Cooking. Talk about how do you know, like if you make meatloaf from 1650 Germany, uh, how, what, what is that like? How do you recreate recipes and that kind of thing? Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because when we just went to Iceland, uh, I was checking out some sagas, and in the sagas, the retelling of stories, they talk about what they were eating around the campfire, why they were telling these stories. And so you can actually get some menus, menu ideas from sagas. They also have lots of manuscripts out there. And believe it or not, there are a lot of menus out there. And they also had grocery lists of what they would, I say a grocery list, but lists of the castle of what they would buy on a monthly basis. You know, they needed 500 pounds of sugar. They needed 50 pounds of flour, they went through, you know, 600 eggs. So you can kind of parse a recipe based on mm -hmm. the ingredients. And they yeah. started, do, they, um, there are remnants of, uh, of a lot of countries' um, cookbooks out there. There's, so they started off with just like, you make it this way, and they always leave something out. It's like when you get your recipe from your grandma, you know, that little <laughs> something was left out, and that's how it was. So and we're, we're doing pretty good at, at recreating them. And uh, Has there been any of those recipes that you actually think, man, this is really good. I need to cook this every week? Yes. Let's hear about it. Um, especially sausages, German sausages. There are some I uh, make, I uh, recreate a German sausage that everyone says tastes just like Christmas. <laughs> It has um, nutmeg and mace and ginger in it, and it's, it's delicious. So I actually do a lot of cooking. 
Very cool. Talk about, uh, I mentioned archery earlier. I don't see any archery items in here, but have any of you guys been involved in the process of making bows and arrows from back in the day? I made arrows. So I've, I've made a bow. Uh, I actually made an Indian flat bow. Mm -hmm. so what kind, what kind of wood did you use for that? Uh, boat arc. Boat arc. Okay, yeah. so that's that's actually uh, Osage Orange. That's yep. got goes by a few different names yep. around here, uh, and part of that is boat arc. But that's is that in Europe? That's definitely an American. So it tree. is not. Uh, I, yeah. I and I actually learned how to do that from a guy who learned how to do it from an American Indian. Okay. Uh, but the same guy then went off and made a longbow. So and uh, you know we actually made quite a few of them uh, and made some also out of Osage uh, orange, but then also used also a yew yeah. and some you know the tr more traditional woods to to compare them, and and they're not dissimilar. They actually work very well for bows as well. So okay, yeah, Osage orange, uh, heads apple, bow dark. It's all the same tree in there. They're very flexible. The, the wood is very flexible, but also very strong, and so it makes for a really good uh, uh, bow. Uh, that's that's kind of very cool that you, you made a more or less a European bow and arrow out of American wood, but it <laughs> still kind of worked. Yeah. How picky do people get uh, your peers in this group by sort of cheating that way, of not being totally authentic, but kind of doing the best you can, but maybe it's not good enough? So fortunately, we have that creative anachronism in the, in the name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and really what we do is we say, we know this is the wood I should be using, but... I don't happen to have a yew stave that's been dried for 10 years because I don't have yew available here. So, yeah. uh, however, this wood is of a similar, you know, strength and, you know, consistency. Here's the samples here. You know, so we, we actually show what we do and then why it's okay, you know, why, why we, we try to, as best we can, recreate it. But again, you know, the, this, the, the gauntlet... Right, it is probably far too uniform for anything anyone would have done, even the master armors, because I can go buy a, a sheet of steel, right. right, as opposed to having to, to beat it out and have imperfections and things. Uh, this is far better than they could have created. I see. Okay. So, uh, so I remember on the, uh, oh, I think I remember <laughs> on the uh, cosplay show I did last season that uh, our artist there, uh, she was saying that sometime, uh, it's been a, about a year since I did that show, but, but about 10 years ago or so, that industry or that hobby changed to where it became okay within that group to do gender bending, have a female Superman, have, have those kind of things, right? So, so I can imagine that your, your, your group has also kind of adopted over the time. It's like, okay, I realize you don't have, you would, so it's okay to use Bodark for this thing. So I can imagine that there's some, some growth yeah, there. And although, realistically, if anyone's really passionate about a particular field, they will usually find a way to recreate exactly the museum piece they've got. So yeah. they'll actually go find a piece and go, I'm making that thing, right? Just to show that they can, using all the techniques. Yeah. And then... Right, uh, you know, Connie has a hothead torch. She can, she did, you know, use the the in the field uh, glass kiln, but she can produce far more. And uh, I don't have, uh, I I am not actually a duke. I don't have, um, you know, a million dollars in pounds and serfs in the field and and everything giving me the industry to to create everything so we have to take some modern shortcuts uh, uh to to do that um if only though yeah so some uh, of these pieces are legitimately really good craftsmanship they look really good have you had 
uh, museums to come and say, hey, we don't have a copy of this crown. Can you guys make one that's approximately close? And they're not trying to fool the customer. They can put a sign that says this is a replica, but does that happen? So museums around the world have pieces that were recreated by SCA members. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's cool. So, that's yeah, that's a neat thing. There are a number of our members who are the foremost authority in this field or that field. So. Yeah, we've, we've, fortunately we have a lot of members and so because of that, um, we have access to quite a bit of information. Sometimes getting that from here to there uh, is difficult. I, and documentation I'm assuming is a big part of what you're doing? It is. Research and documentation. Talk about the one everyone wants to hear about is uh, DIY brewing. How do you make uh, <laughs> uh, era authentic beer? Uh, so again, Hops really was not around in the Middle Ages. So true brews were actually ales for the most part. Um, so uh, the modern palate doesn't really appreciate the medieval ale. Uh, I love my hops. I put hops in everything. <laughs> so, uh, But we do make mead, a yeah. lot of mead. Mead is, okay. yeah. I've had mead only at the Renfest up uh -huh. just north of Houston here in the fall. So, so. And they do good stuff. Uh -huh. So they we do. both, yeah. so we have made, we make, uh, we brew at our house, we vent at our house, we make mead at our house. So I'd, the I'd say I have 10 gallons going, but it went bad, so, so I don't have anything going right now. Mead <laughs> is my next project. Is it? I've got I a beer and a cider already. So there's actually, a, I, I don't know much about it, but I know that there is a big, or at least a few years ago, there was a big microbrewing kind of uh, group of hobbyists in this area. There yep. is. Yeah. So and you some guys, of them belong several. to our group. Okay, so you guys yeah. are yeah. tapping into yeah. that crowd, yeah. and they're probably tapping into your crowd yeah. as well. They're, yeah, Absolutely. very cool. Very cool. So not only is making all of these things a big part of your group and your reason for being, but also a big part of your organization is also teaching. Talk about that process. How do you pass down the, the knowledge that you've gained and the experience to the next generation, to the next group? Well, funny enough, in order to re receive the peerage, in order to be a knight or a laurel or a pelican, under all of those, um, a requirement to reach that level of the award is teaching. Um, you teach because you want to, you teach because it's the right thing to do, and you teach to share the knowledge. Is that, to, are those in formal classes, or is it more or less, hey, come over to my house on Tuesday and I'll show you how to make a robe or Both. whatever? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. We, okay. We have, and everything in between. We have full collegium events where it's just a day of classes. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, we host one uh, every year uh, in third weekend of August. Uh, we host a local event where it's just all classes on various topics. So, so let's say that someone comes in and says, I, I want to learn how to make a sword, but I really don't care about your group. But I'm willing to come and come to your classes. Is that, is that a person to be welcome into your area? Um, or? Well, funny enough that you said that. <laughs> The person who he would go to, if he is um, he's in our group, and we'll just call him um, Craig. He's known by something else. He won Forged in Fire. And so uh, I see. The, the show actually, on Discovery Channel, right? He actually um, yeah. has open stuff at his house that people go to that aren't in the history club. So what is appealing about the group, uh, the SCA, when I ran into you guys a week or so ago, is the idea that it is truly the maker spirit. It is... Mm -hmm. You guys learn in crafts, and you've you've kind of wrapped it into a whole hobby where you're, in some sense or another, you're you're developing your entire lifestyle in this. But you're really doing the DIY of let's learn how to make a thing, let's learn how to replicate a thing, let's learn how to make everything it takes to, f to do a feast for 50 people. That that's really neat. You, you go ahead. So one of the things that I like to laugh about is that my hobby has hobbies. <laughs> that's unusual. <laughs> and it is what out of control. 
<laughs> really, our, our, really, we're out of control with this because as soon as you see one thing, you're like, oh, I want to make this, and oh, I need this, and it is expensive. I mean, these these brooches were $85. I can't make them, but I made everything else. So we could make it, but that's another thing we have to that learn. Takes so that's two more months to do. Cast. And, yeah. and we know how to cast, but not to that skill level, especially to the carving and the wax, because that's a lost wax cast, yeah. which we have experts in our group that can do that. We can't, and so we paid someone to make that for us. Well, it, it, it could go into a never-ending or, or, or oh. rabbit hole, right? Because there, a couple years ago, there was a YouTube channel of of a guy who, I, I think the one I remember was, it took him six months to, to boil an egg because he had to go grow the grain that he's going to eventually mm -hmm. feed to the yeah. chicken. Then he had to cut down the wood that he made the chicken coop. Sheep and the then, shawl project. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole thing, right? So it took six months to make an egg, and it... And, I can see that happening with you guys as you, you dig so deep into this stuff that it could take forever to make a simple thing. Um, this coronet, that I'm going to pick it up, not that everybody can see it, but this is an early period. This is Roman coronet. I wanted a different coronet than my Norse coronet, so I went and cut it, and I rolled the edge and did everything because I really wanted a new coronet to match my Roman clothes because, you know, your girl's got to you can have, have the new bling. jewelry. Yeah. So yeah, it, it gets out of control. So 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 talk about I guess a couple of things. And one is if someone is interested out there listening and they want to join SEA and be a full fledged member, that's where option A. Another one is if they actually want to go and learn how to make metal metalworking or woodworking or make jewelry or make swords or make cloth. Talk about how does someone come into your group and do those different routes. So they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So if someone just says, you know what, I, I just kind of want to learn how to, to make a sword, right, then come to the local sword guild, guild. right? We have a metalworking guild that uh, meets once a month, I think, mm -hmm. and go to that. And by the way, when you're sitting and visiting with people, they'll go, oh, yeah, and I'm going to the populace meeting, or, hey, I'm going over to fighter practice. We can see some of these guys using them. Oh, that kind of sounds interesting too. Yeah. You know, so we we tend to you know give you the first ones free, and turns out the next one's free, and the next one's free, <laughs> and the next one's free too. Uh, virtually no one charges in our group for any of the teaching can, we. Uh, you've got you've got a knife over there. You told me about earlier off air, but I can imagine if you get into knife making, then the next thing is you're going to want to get into leather work to make the sheath. Yep. And yeah, so I can see where it just kind of goes on and, and the woodworking on and on. for the handle, and yeah, or at least pair with people who do that. Mm -hmm. um, there's no shame in doing group projects and in making new friends through crafts. Okay, yeah. very I, cool. I don't own a sewing machine. I don't sew. Um, all my friends sew for me, but what I do is camp cook. So okay. we, you know, it's it's funny if you look back, but we form households, groups of people all together, and then we barter and take care of each other in these little. But that's how the communities were way it back is. then, right? It there, is. there were specialists, there was carpenters, and then mm -hmm. there were sewers, and you yep. would. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I make beads and cook. Um, my friends sew for me. Strategic friendships. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So how do how what is the process like to actually? join SCA. If someone's out there and they actually want to be a full-fledged, be right, right at the level you guys are, how, how, how do they go about doing that? What, what is that process? So, so there, there is a membership at SCA.org. Uh, there's a form and you can fill it out and boom, you're a member. Uh, however, from that website, you can then find your local group uh, and you can go visit the local group first. 
right? And I actually highly recommend you go visit your local group first. Um, right now, we're having a business meeting in the other room. And while I was outside waiting for Brian to show up, there was this young lady in the dark looking very frightened. And I was like, excuse me. I'm like, do you need help? She goes, I'm looking for the history club thing. And I said, oh, it's right in here. And so she's brand new. So you just find it online. You just look it up. And then you just go to a, uh, a local meeting. Either go to a fighter practice at the park or you show up at a business meeting. So if you had to, this perhaps might be an unfair question, and I'm, and I'm OK with that. But <laughs> if you had to uh, kind of describe the demographic of SCA members, what, uh, what, what is your best guess at that? Oh. So the great thing about the SCA is we welcome everybody. Uh -huh. One of the worst things about the SCA is we welcome everybody. Uh, so we have a plethora of interests uh, within Big our word for 1600s. Uh -huh. yeah. really good. <laughs> a cornucopia, if you will. Uh, but we have people who are public school teachers. We have people who are engineers uh, working at engineer. NASA. Uh, I'm an attorney. I'm a nurse. The lady, the lady who just came in, she's a student. Okay, um, and to help college. even, uh, um, I don't know, broaden the demographic, you've got the Youth and Family Achievement Program. Talk a little bit about that. YAFA, do you ever pronounce it YAFA as an acronym, Y-A-F-A? Yes, it, it is, and this is a, a society-wide uh, initiative to implore not just youth involvement, but as it says, youth and family involvement. So it's actually getting the parents involved with the children because we have people, you know, I joined... Uh, as a, as a kid, I was 12 when I first joined, and now I'm married and looking at having kids down the road. So it's how do we keep people like me uh, involved as my family develops? Because we have a lot of people who drop off uh, when they have young kids because there may not be the activities that those kids want right. to do or they get into Little League and stuff like that. So it's how do we uh, get them to keep active and keep those kids involved and keep the parents involved Give a 10-second well. uh, example of what are some things you do for a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old that comes into the group. So they are welcome to uh, join in combat. We do have youth combat, okay. uh, both for rapier and for the armored combat as well. They can absolutely participate in archery uh, and any one of the art forms. And ton tons yes. of this craft, I can imagine, yes, a teenager would just Yes, and they do a lot of ANS. I yeah, that's great. Okay. Very cool. We're running a little bit low on time, but I want to spend just a couple minutes, uh, keep it short here, but but uh, we're going to have fun with those folks that are sitting home and uh, Googling all of these new terms because there's no chance in hell they're going to be able to Google the names that you guys have picked for yourselves. So let's go around the table. John, what is the name that you've picked for yourself in this world? So I am Duke Olstead the Unsteady. Okay, I can spell most of those words, but uh, okay, th that one's not so bad. I expected much worse. Go ahead with yours. Uh, I'm Master Brian O'Ulliam. Yeah, that, no, no chance on that one. <laughs> okay, spell that. Uh, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, just, just normal. Uh, O'Ulliam is O with an accent, uh, a lowercase h, a capital U-I-L-L-I-A-M. So when you spell it out, you actually see that it's O'William, just with a U. Okay. And it's the uh, Irish meaning of... Descendant of William. My father's William, my grandfather's William, my great-grandfather's William. Okay. And how about you, Connie Jo? I am Duchess Ebergardus Bonzel. Okay. And so I've read just a little bit about this. There's all kinds of fun to be had with the names, but you guys are not allowed to pick historically accurate names. Is that right? Uh, so we are. In fact, we're somewhat required to be able to document that our name was used. We're not allowed to say, I am Arthur, King of the Britons. But I, I absolutely can be Arthur. Oh, I see. Fact, okay. So, okay. Yeah, so, we, so we use names that we can document to the, to the time period. So but, but not a Alexander the Great or whatever. Right. Not, not an it. actual important person's name. Got it. Okay. 
Okay, so that's a little touch on that. I, I figured that would be fun to have the listeners try to figure out the uh, all the weird, goofy words you were saying as your name. <laughs> so even but, better that you should try uh, to make them guess what time period and what uh, nationality we are. Yeah, there you go. That's some exercise, an exercise for the listeners at home. That would definitely be good. Let's tell the uh, the listeners at home a little bit how to find out more about you. Some social media tags, some web pages, contact information. So the kingdom of Onstiora, if you go to Onstiora, it's A-N-S-T-E-O-R-R-A. That's how you spell Onstiora. There's an Onstiora Facebook group. Onstiora is on Twitter. Onstiora is on Instagram. And Onstiora is on Pinterest. And the big old webpage is sca.org, correct? Yes. Very cool. sca.org for the uh, international organization and Onstiora.org is our specific kingdom's webpage. Okay. And locally, we are the barony of Loch Soyer. Yeah, so, okay, so we do have some listeners around Houston, of course, but we do have listeners all over the place. Uh-huh. Is there any help you can point so someone listening from Nebraska, what, what's the best way for them to find their local S- home? SCA.org, and okay. there's right on the front page is find my local group. Okay, very cool. That's, you that's put in your zip code, things. and they can find their group. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap it up here, but what have we missed? Is there anything that you guys really want to touch on that, uh, that I haven't, oh, haven't well, covered? Uh, event wars. There's wars all over, and they last anywhere from three days to two weeks where you go camping. Yeah, with we'll, we'll have 10,000 people yeah. on a field camping for two weeks, 5,000, 1,500 people on a field chasing each other across the field, uh, so much so that they use a cannon to start, and you actually hear the roar of the footsteps wow. as we charge across. I can, I can, when you were describing that, I almost saw in my head the vision of like a, a drone filming that from above. And, and it's a Braveheart movie, yeah. right? Just and, they have, anymore, that's, that's yeah. and they have wars all over. They have it in California. They have it in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so no matter where you live around the world, you'll have a local war. Very cool. Well, everyone go out and check out sca.org. That's Society for Creative Anachronism, SCA. Dot org And uh, thank you all for being here. This has kind of been a neat show. I've learned a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank, thank you. you. Cool. Thanks. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. 